We'll look at the scripture for a few moments in this evening hour. I encourage you to look at the scriptures because they are filled with the teachings of God and the teachings of the Lord Jesus and how we can live and develop our lives. Let me share with you how the prophet of God reacted and responded to the plea of the people that had gone away from God. If you'll go with me into the last verse of this chapter, just for a moment on a short excursion, you discover in verse 27 that the king of Moab took his eldest son that should have reigned in his stead and offered him for a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was great indignation against Israel. And they departed from him and returned to their own land. What a thing to do, to offer up your own son as a sacrifice. And yet these were the things that were done in these days. Now it's an important thing that at the very beginning of this story from 2 Kings chapter 3, we understand that the king of Israel and the king of Moab, or rather the king of Israel and the king of Judah, they got together with the king of Edom to fight the king of Moab. And yet as they started in, there was no agreement between them. There was no peaceful attitude between them. They couldn't easily get into an alliance. And it's very evident from the scriptures that it's difficult for people who are of the persuasion towards God to get into an alliance together with those that are not persuaded towards God our Father. Now, you say very quickly, but preacher, they are all in the economy, the old economy of the Old Testament and have an affection to God. However, they had turned away from God. Only Jehoshaphat had agreed to stay, as we would put it in our day, straight. The rest had gone their own way. And no matter which way they went, they went away from God. They were agreeing with human sacrifice. They were agreeing with the attitude of Moab. They were worshipping the same idols. And they did great dishonor to the name of God the Father. If you'll notice in verse 1, we find Jehoram, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel. That's the king of Israel. Jehoram is the king of Israel. In, and he reigned in Samaria in the 18th day, a year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. His reign was short, but then in verse 2, he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and like his mother, for he put away the image or the tower of Baal, or Baal, or Baal, as that's pronounced often in English, that his father had made. Now he did this. He destroyed that tower, but it wasn't really a great effort on his part. It was sort of agreeing with Elijah the prophet. It was sort of agreeing with the prophet of God. All right, I make this gesture. I pretend I follow. I make this gesture towards God. And it was a very simple thing to push down a great tower that had been built. 
But if you cast your eyes on into verse 16, we discover these words, and they are passionate, I believe. In verse 16, God answers Elisha, and Elisha says, Thus saith the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. Thus saith the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. Now let's look at these three men, the king of Edom, the king of Judah, and the king of Israel. The king of Edom and the king of Israel have gone away from God. Jehoshaphat stays firm and stays with the Lord his God. Let's watch because we discover these two men have allowed an infiltration of evil into the people of God. In fact, they have actually encouraged the evil. They now link together with Jehoshaphat to fight Moab. Evil really has no fight with evil. And so the king of Israel and Judah and of Edom, they all say, oh, we've taken on more than we can cope with. Because of our compromise with Satan, because of the attitude we've had towards sinful practice, we've taken on more than we can cope with. And Moab is too great. What Moab did was they marshaled every man that they could. They got every man to stand together, shoulder to shoulder, and Israel was frightened. Jehoshaphat said, wait a minute. Wait a moment. Surely there's a prophet somewhere. And surely that prophet can tell us truly whether we're going to win or lose. Don't we have a prophet? And the answer came back. Yes, in the ranks of the people of Israel, we do have a prophet. His name is Elisha. Now notice the people. They had to inquire, where is the prophet? Then they had to say, bring him out to us. In other words, the man of God was not given the central place in the economy of the day that he should have been given. God requires that we turn to him first, not eventually. We discover Elisha brought before the three kings. It's kind of interesting, for Elisha in verse 14 makes a distinction. Look at the words. Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts liveth, before whom I stand. In other words, you three kings are not too much. I stand before the Lord. As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee, nor see thee. What a scathing thing. He makes such a distinction. A man that loves God, I will follow. I will speak with. But those that know not this God, I'll have nothing to do with, won't even look. Now look at this, for it's mighty important. We live at a time when people are saying, if you feel it and experience it, then you have it. We look at a time when the people seem to be suggesting to all of us compromise upon compromise, dilute your faith, 
There is no need to stand for the great issues of the Bible and the things of God. Dilute your stand. This is constantly being proclaimed. Oh, not from pulpits maybe, but by people who compromise their lives day by day by day by letting down the standards of Christ, by putting the standards of the Lord Jesus to one side. This is constantly being preached and taught. Elisha makes the distinction. I wouldn't even talk to such a person, says he. You're fooled with the devil. I want nothing to do with you. You're fooled around with evil things. I want nothing to do with you. And so few people can understand today why it's necessary to say this very thing. When people fool around with the devil, there comes a time when we have to say, I'll not join you, I'll not house you, I'll not allow you in my presence. Years ago when I first started my ministry, in London City, there would be several people that would come from the various prisons to our house. As they came to our house, because I would introduce them perhaps to the Lord Jesus and very certainly to the things of God, as this would happen, I would encourage them to come to our household. And my parents were most patient. They never knew who I was bringing home tomorrow. And sometimes it was women and sometimes it was men of some ill repute. And I gradually would introduce different people to our household, then introduce them to the church. Then we got married, and after a little while, we had our first child, and I was still bringing all and sundry into the house. I'd not yet made the distinction. And one day, I realized that God first made me responsible for my family. That is, I would be irresponsible bringing some of these people to our house any longer. One day I was looking out of the window and I saw some rather dark-looking characters in a car and they drove up and down and they sort of pinpointed our house and I just had a little talk with the Lord. Lord, no more do I bring these characters to this household. There is a time to cut off, to be able to say I cannot encourage wickedness to come into my house. Be very careful, you parents who are young, whom you allow in your house, for the influence a person can have on your children is colossal, without perhaps you even knowing what it is that's taking place. The influence is there. And I would encourage you to be very careful like Elisha, and say with Elisha, if it weren't for Jehoshaphat, if it weren't for the godly presence of a godly man who has lived a godly life before God the Father, I wouldn't even be bothered with you people. Now that's strong stuff. But Elisha made the distinction. And I believe today when we are filled with so many attitudes of sinfulness and so many excuses for sinfulness, all the way from stealing and lying and murmuring against God and His precious Word to homosexuality and filthy and wretched things. All of these things are branded by God and it is not an act of 
unpleasant socialness to brand them also. Not the persons committing the, the crime, but the crime itself must be branded and be recognized as a crime. A crime before God, if not for man. If man will accept the crime as being the norm, then man must live, live his life before God, accepting the wrong standard. And when he stands before God, he must receive the judgment of God for selecting the wrong standard that was not God's. It's because men don't believe there is a God, nor that he keeps his word, that they feel they can be flippant with the standards of God. Elisha simply said, I wouldn't even look at you fellows. Can you imagine talking to a king like that? Can you imagine it? Notice he prefaces his remark, the Lord before whom I stand. There is where I stand, kings. I stand before God. You can behead me. You can imprison me. You can take me out and lose me. But I stand before God. What you do to my body is of no consequence. But what is of consequence is what is in my soul. Can you stand like that today in the day in which we live? Notice, Jehoram followed Jeroboam. And if you turn the pages to 1 Kings 12, you can read about that. Verses 28 to 31. But the important thing to be remembering is that this following was a wretched business. He set up different gods at Bethel and at Dan, the place where Jacob had seen the ladder going up to heaven and God opening the heavens and ministering through his angels to Jacob. Why, now there was an idol to worship. Unfortunately, in the day in which we live, we are still doing the same sort of things. We are placing in in other, in wrong places, these idols. Have you ever wondered why the grave of Moses was never discovered? If you go to the little book of Jude, you discover when <clears throat> Jude wrote his epistle, he said, Michael the archangel is forever fighting with Satan. And in, during that fight, he is keeping Satan from finding the grave of Moses. And the reason we must, we must ask the question, why would he fight? Because I believe this. Satan loves a shrine. The place where our Lord Jesus was born. That blessed place with all its humility and all its beauty and all its intrinsic loveliness has been blasted from all the world. It has become a shrine a mecca for Christians to travel to at Christmas. And it's a tragic thing. If Satan can get us to a shrine, we will worship an object. Instead of worshipping the King of Kings, we worship a religion. If you come to that place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, I rather wish I had lived before aeroplanes were invented or many people had enough money to travel around the world. 
For I recognized that had I trod upon that place of the skull where the night turned dull, where my Savior at last was impelled, why, if I'd been there, I think I'd have trembled. But today, we walk with mimic crosses and we go through the whole pageantry of the crucifixion. Some even dare to lay themselves upon a cross and to be crucified as the Christ, the Son of God, was. And Calvary has become a shrine. And we worship the religion around the shrine, not the King of Kings. Not the King of Kings. Not the priest of priests. Not the prince of princes. Ladies and gentlemen, if Satan could find the grave of Moses, it would become a shrine. Elijah was gathered in a great whirlwind into the heavens, and there was a great fire, it seemed. The cherubim and the seraphim took him right up into the presence of God the Father, that he might return to this earth and talk with Jesus the fulfillment of the prophecies of God. Moses died and was buried in a secret place, and no one has ever discovered that place. It is protected by the angel Michael, and Satan can't even find it. Isn't that fascinating? So he is thwarted in all his might, with all his abilities, he cannot find the grave of Moses. Ha. He cannot turn it to a shrine. And people cannot come and sing songs to Moses. And they cannot come and, and go through their chants and their prayers to Moses. They cannot do it. It has not become a shrine. But that same Moses, in the same manner that Elijah spoke with Jesus, came and spoke with Jesus about the law. And Jesus spoke with Elijah and with Moses and said, and the conversation was about his coming death, his coming resurrection, how he would fulfill the law and be its very fulfillment, how he would fulfill the prophecy and be its very perfection. All of this to the glory and to the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we build a shrine, we build an idol. And Elisha makes the distinction, Mesa or Mesa, the king of Moab, was a man who had heard the teaching of the scripture. You only have to go to Amos 1 and 1, and you'll quickly discover that. <clears throat> Mesa, the king of Moab, was a sheep herder, or a magnate, we would call him today. He had thousands of sheep. And the problem between Moab and the, and the Israelite people was this, that he decided that he was no longer going to give them a 100,000 lambs and the, the wool from a 100,000 sheep a year. He just decided that was it. And that was the cause of the war. Once Satan has got you hooked with a deal, 
such as a very good deal, a hundred thousand sheep, you could use them as they did in the sacrifice to God, and the hundred thousand shearings of, or the shearings from a hundred thousand sheep per year to make clothing with, that was a good deal. That was a good deal. Now the deal is made in historically, years before, now the introduction of the various religions and the introduction of the various types of worship. Now the introduction of strange gods and then the introduction of strange worship even to the sacrifice of human beings to these idol gods. You think that's rather distant? Let me share with you this. I may have already done so in the past, but let me share it with you now. As a young man in the city of London, I used to preach on the street corners during, during lunchtime. As all the businessmen, the baker, bankers and so on were walking backwards and forwards, there was a small group of us that would preach in the corner of Finsbury Square. My father's factory was just behind and a little higher up. I think some of his workers thought that he had sired a lunatic. But I would preach the word of God there and sometimes had the joy of leading people to the Lord Jesus Christ. During that time, when we would go to factory after factory and ask, is it possible that we could have a preaching service in your factory when the machines run slow, when they stop for lunch or coffee breaks, is it possible that we could speak the word to these people? Absolutely no. And on one or two occasions I met with the various um, union people and they said, you cannot do this. We cannot change the work schedule of our people. Nothing will alter. It must not happen. And we were persistent and so were they. A few years later, people, this by the way is before the great influx of people from India and Pakistan and from the Far East and the Near East and from the East Indies and from the West Indies. Then came these people from the various parts of the world and all settled in, seemed at least, in London. Today, the laws have been changed in that so-called Christian nation not that the Christians may go and pray, not that the Christians may go and worship, but so the Mohammedans can go and worship and can turn to Mecca at noon every day. And so lunchtime now is 11.30 until 1 o'clock instead of from what used to be 12.30 to 2 o'clock or thereabouts, give or take a few hours. Isn't it interesting? First of all, we had to have their trade. First of all, we had to have their industry. Then we had to have their products. Then we had to encourage them in commerce. Then we had to develop a whole new society by bringing people into our society and causing an intermingling of the various groups of people throughout the world, just as we've done in the United States. But today, I am told, I've not seen it, but I am told the largest mosque in the world is in London. A Christian country. Now if you think 
that I'm getting uptight about Mohammedism and all these other isms. You're right. This man, Elisha, said, I wouldn't even look at you because you've turned to other gods. And if it weren't for this one man that was right with God, I would have nothing to do with you at all. Now he says, you want this group of people to be destroyed? That's a simple thing. He says, in fact, it's a light thing. The word here is that it is a very light thing. It's a very simple, ordinary thing. And we can de develop a whole area of thinking here. There isn't time for that. But I want you to see with me in verse uh, 14, where he, verse 16, I'm sorry, where he says, make this valley full of ditches. They, he said, send the men, send your soldiers out to dig ditches. Make them dig ditches. And one of the problems amongst Christian people today is we're not prepared to get our hands dirty. We have to go out and learn to dig ditches. We have to dig the ditches of God. You see, ditches can be filled. Hearts can be filled when the hole in the heart is recognized. Let's dig the ditches. This valley, this area, this whole community is waiting for God to do something. The enemy is all around. Why, if you go on in verse 16, you discover, For thus saith the Lord, Ye shall not see wind, neither shall ye see rain, yet the valley shall be filled with water that ye may drink, both ye and your cattle and your beasts. And verse 18, this is but a small, or in the authorized version, light thing. In the sight of the Lord, He will deliver the Moabites into your hand. I want to show you quickly what He did. The children of Israel were obedient, even though they were wrong with God. At this time, they became obedient and did exactly as they were told, and they dug the ditches. Then as the kings were watching, from the area of Edom, the water flowed down and filled the ditches. There was water in abundance for all the cattle and all the people. And the Moabites came out of Moab, standing shoulder to shoulder with their spears and their shields. And they marched to the, to the crest of the hill. And as they did so, at the dawning of the day, they saw the whole valley now last night they had seen nothing in that valley but ordinary soil and a lot of people very hot and very discomforted. But as they came up over the horizon and looked down into the valley, they saw water in the ditches everywhere. Now some of those soldiers, I'm quite sure because I was in the army, they would dig a small ditch because it was too much. Others would dig a deep ditch because they were just deep ditch diggers. And others would dig a wide, shallow ditch because they wanted it to look as if they did a lot, but actually they just scraped the surface. And the water came and filled all the ditches. All these shapes and sizes, all these trenches of different shapes were now in the valley. Now see the picture. The soldiers are standing sh shoulder to shoulder and they look down into the valley and the sun is rising. 
And the redness of the sun reflects on the water in great redness. And they say, surely these are pools of blood. The three kings during the night have fought one another. Let's go down into the valley and loot the place. Satan is ever the opportunist. And they come tearing down and they dash into the valley and the children of Israel's soldiers are simply waiting for them and they chase the Moabites and destroy them. And the king of Moab rushes back to his place, his castle, and there he takes his eldest son who shall reign in his stead and offers him to an idol and this nauseates the Israelis, and they go away. They won't even fight him. It's such a nauseous thing he does. There's the story capsulized. Let's see some of the teaching very quickly. You can see the great love. God is not willing that any should perish, but is long-suffering to us. We have to remember that. For even though we walk away from God, God not willing that we should perish. God, like the prodigal son's father, is forever reaching out to us. He is ever looking, as it were, out for us to turn and to come back. And Jehoshaphat seems to have been the pivot upon which all of Israel should surely turn. Understand the great love of God. This love is not hopeless. It is filled with hope. But those that have fallen and those that are rejected can come to this Lord Jesus today and they can know Jesus today for God has exemplified himself and expressed himself in the great gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the valley that is before us is the valley of the shadow of death and ditches need to be built or dug. The ditches have to be made Take your metaphoric finger and scratch a ditch within your heart. Let the Word of God dig a ditch within your heart. Let the precious holiness of Christ dig a ditch within your heart that the Word of God might fill your heart. We are saved not by the mimicry or by the reflection of blood, but we are saved by blood, the blood of Jesus. And it's necessary that you and I understand that our hearts need some ditches. And if you wonder why it is you're married to the wrong person or that you have had some dreadful experience with a person, if you wonder why there is difficulty in your family or difficulty in your business or there is difficulty in some cause that you're very involved in, my dear friend, it's simply to dig a ditch. You see, God recommends Himself to us. He says, He is near unto them that are of a broken heart. But the Scripture goes on in that verse and says, and of a contrite spirit. My heart may break. It's for me to make my heart contrite. Then God the Father is near to me. The circumstance may break my heart. Listen to Job, who's scraping all the great boils from his body. Listen to Job, whose children have been, been destroyed, whose lands have been confiscated, whose cattle has been rustled, whose home has been burned. Listen to him. He says, I know that my Redeemer liveth. I know it. 
in the great brokenheartedness, the man admits, I know my Redeemer liveth. But look at his contrite heart, the knowledge that God is on his throne, the knowledge that God has recommended his love towards us in the trial. We were yet sinners, people away from God. Christ died. That's wondrous to know that. But here is the contrite heart. Listen to, to Job. He says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. There is his contrite heart. And he expresses himself in that manner. Now, if we are broken by circumstance and our heart is breaking, and if we will turn and say, well, no matter what's happening, I know that all things work together for good to them that love God, who are called according to his purposes, then we have victory. And it matters not what the world or what man shall do unto us. It matters nothing. All that matters is this, that somehow we glorify God. The ditch is dug within our heart and the refreshing stream that comes from the fountainhead fills us up to overflowing and the glory of God is upon us. Elisha reveals the need to dig and to dig deep. Jesus revealed the same thing. He said there was good ground and there was wretched ground. There was, the, there was the fertile ground and there was the rocky ground. There was the ground that would allow the seeds of the things of God to put their roots down and to grow up. And there was the ground that was parched by the sun. There is need to scratch that rocky ground if your heart is hardened. There is need to open up those hearts of ours so that the Lord Jesus may come in and then seeing the blood, the angel will pass over us. I share with you that this is a great thing beyond the ability of this preacher to pronounce. But allow the inner reaches of your soul to be hollowed out for blessing for God is waiting and God is wanting to bless us. And the holes in the hearts, the ditches are not dug. We're not ready for blessing. Verse 20 tells us the country was absolutely filled with water. God's outpoured blessing will always fill the the whole environment. Sure, people will misunderstand it. But the army could now drink and Jesus is the everlasting spring of water. And he says, come, come to the water. Come and drink. Water washes us. It refreshes us. It cleanses us. And it quenches our thirst. It cleanses us from all sin. It washes us white as snow. It quenches the thirst of every soul. It refreshes the despondent character and the despondent person. Our hearts are receptacles of wonderfully outpoured blessing, but they need to be open to God, to His Word, to His way, to His will, to His wisdom that we may receive God the Father and God the Son and the power of God the Holy Ghost. He is perfect. 
and his will is perfect. His way is perfect. His wisdom is perfect. His word is perfect. He is our blessing. It is a light thing. It is a small thing, says Elisha. It's a small thing that God does to bless you. But if you'll come in your filthiness and you'll come with your wretchedness and you'll come with your hopelessness, if you'll come to God, He says this, I will give you blessings. I will fill your heart with new things. We need very desperately to get into the day of new things. Often I pray for this church and congregation, Lord, reward us not according to our iniquities, but according to thy loving kindness. Lord, do thou pour thy blessing down upon us in spite of us, not because, because I cannot guarantee I will stand in a righteous place one minute from now. But now I ask, oh God, do thou have mercy and do thou have power and do thou have thy way, Lord? How are you? How are you? I pray for this church that our Father will pour us out blessing, but I've noticed that the receptacles are either clogged or not open. I notice that there are arguments galore. There are personality clashes colossal. There are all kinds of things that stop the receptacle from receiving the blessing. Ladies and gentlemen, it's there. It's a small thing for God to bless us. And I pray, God restore unto us the years the locusts have eaten. Lord, restore unto us the times when it seemed that there was a great and terrifying fly amongst us eating up all kinds of glory and honor, taking and destroying all kinds of loving kindness and tender mercy. Lord, restore unto us the days the locusts have destroyed and devoured. Then I pray for you as an individual. And I ask God, if it's such a small thing, You hear this preacher pray, Lord, bless the congregation. If it's such a small thing, Lord, will you do it? Yet we ask a great thing, Oh God, do thou bless me. Years ago, Jacob said, I will not let thee go till thou bless me. And he wrestled all night. And at the end of the wrestling match, as the dawn was breaking, the angel just touched his thigh and put it out of joint. And from there on, Jacob became a man that had to walk with a stick. His thigh was out of joint. He wrestled all night. I will not let thee go till thou bless me. And the angel wrestled with him as a man would wrestle with a man. But in the final moments, the angel simply touched his side and he had a dislocated or disjointed thigh. Do you wrestle with God? Maybe we should stop our wrestling. Simply say to God, I will not let thee go till thou dost fill this open heart. Is your heart that open to the blessing of God?
is it so open to the things of God? Ah, I challenge you. How are you with God? I will not let thee go till thou bless me. It's a small thing with God. How are you doing with idols? Hmm? Learn the lesson. It's precious. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we tell thee now, we love thee, but our love is so chrome and tinsel. We tell thee now, Lord, that we would surrender all to thee. Oh, we'd surrender all. And in the moment of this passion, in the passion of this moment, it's easy enough for us to say, I surrender all. It's more difficult actually to live that tomorrow. But we ask of thee that thou would come upon us in such a power and with such a might that tomorrow we may have already surrendered all. All to Jesus. O oh, thou living God, gather us up now that we may open our hearts to thee, the ditches may be filled with thy glory. The presence of the blood may be seen, that we may be washed whiter than snow. We ask this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.